smartphone and do me a favor, tell me when that song was written. Uh, I just would like to know, as a matter of fact, just for my own knowledge. So that gives some of you something to do, doesn't it? Yes. You love those smartphones. When was Be Thou My Vision written? I don't know if it's a recent song or if it's old. I don't know. It has that old kind of flavor to it, but traditional Irish. But to see, I'm, I'm a traditional. Yeah, that's kind of my background anyway. Believe it or not, I used to have red hair when I had hair. And uh, there we go. All right, all things Celtic. I love that. Anybody got an idea yet? When you do, just raise your hand and it'll be fine and I'll call on you because I'd like to know when that thing was written. We are in a series called A Tale of Two Kings, Saul and David, and we're finishing up this particular week. As a matter of fact, we've been in for a few weeks, so um, this is the final Sunday, and then next week, Matt will be in the pulpit talking about Lent, and then also again the fall. Okay, there it is. I see that hand. I haven't said that in a long time. Okay. Eighth century... Whoa, 700 translated in 1912? Wow. See, I love that kind of thing because we're, we're singing a song that the church has sung for, you know, some of the songs we, as a matter of fact, sometimes if, if a song has a copyright of, of 2001, we go, oh, that's an old song, you know, because it's only it's 14 years old. We're talking about a song that the church has been singing now for, oh, 1,300 years? I love that. I love to be, to be connected back to that church. Thank you very much. You had the courage. My wife had the courage to wave her hand. Some of you knew that, but you didn't have the courage to wave your hand, did you? You didn't know. My wife did. Way to go, Linda. All right. Anyway, we're going to close this series up. We've been here for about the last four weeks. What we're doing is we're comparing and contrasting the two kings because while they were both kings, the first king of Israel, of course, was God. Remember? I can't believe that. Okay, one more time. The first king of Israel was There you go, exactly. The first human king of Israel was Saul. Okay. In other words, God said, look, I'm your king. And he appointed people. He called called them judges. And that's the way that uh, Israel ran for hundreds of years until the people got tired of it. They wanted a king. God said, okay, you want a king? You get a king. Gave him Saul. Didn't work out really well. Then David came along. And we still talk about the house of David. And so we're looking at there too. You can read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And those will really give you the the comparison of the two. And yet when you look at them, they had so many similarities. I mean, they, they came from humble circumstances. They didn't try to get the throne. They weren't politically you know, active. They didn't try to seek anything. And they both messed up really, really big time. I mean, big time. And yet one of them was removed and his house was removed and his sons. And then one of them, David, is established forever. The line of David, the house of David, we still talk about that. Even the Messiah comes from the line of David. And why? Why? What's the difference? Particularly since we know that they both messed up big time. And so what we've been looking at is the fact, of course, that Saul was after his own image and that sort of thing, where David was after God's own heart. So as we've been looking for the last several weeks, we're going to go a quick run through before we finish this up. This is what we've learned. First of all, God is interested in direction, not perfection. Okay, that's the first thing, that, that God, neither one of them were perfect, but David's direction was for God. Saul's direction was for himself and his own image and everything else that he could get. And God is interested in your direction, not your perfection. This is what the scripture says. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Where are you headed? See, that's the question. Where are you headed? 
If you're headed for your own direction, your own self-fulfillment, your own, then you need to repent. That just simply means to turn and you start heading for God and you say, God, I want you. I'm going to mess up along the way. I've got lots to learn, but I want you and you and you and you move towards God and God is more interested in your direction than in perfection. Then we also understood, of course, that they did mess up. There's the two types of things we messed up. There was the unintentional stuff that you just can't do. We call them mistakes. But there's the intentional mess-ups. These are the things that we can help. These are the decisions we make to be selfish, and we call them what? We call them sin, okay? Now, out there in the world, maybe you don't want to use that word because it's offensive and you want to say uh, you really messed up, you goofed up, you went your own way, you were selfish, whatever you want to call it. Bible calls it sin. That's what it means. It means to be selfish. It means I have a choice of doing things God's way or my way or do my way. Of obeying God or obeying my own desires or obeying my desires. Call it sin. Okay? Here we really get to do that without apology. Out there it's almost gotten to be where you have to apologize. There's been so many books written, you know, whatever happened to sin. Well, I don't care what you call it out there. In here we're going to call it what the Bible calls it. Sin. What do you do with that? Well, how about this? Don't spend your sin. You know that. And that was the difference. Saul would spin his sin. He would sin, and he would be confronted, and Saul would go, it wasn't me? Oh, okay, I did it, but it wasn't my fault. It was their fault. Spinning a sin. David, when he was confronted with his sin, said, I sinned. Sinned. I sinned. This is what Scripture says. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. Don't spend your sin. When you know you messed up, just admit it. And no buts. Well, but they really made me mad. They really pushed my button. They may have pushed the button, but um, what happened after that was you. Just as it's me. And then the next thing we learned, of course, is, is they, they had a completely different understanding of worship. And so we came to this conclusion. You never confuse a worship service with a service of worship, okay? Saul had the whole idea that worship was an event like this. It's a worship service. That was worship to him. And you could only worship when everything was just right. And he used worship to kind of cover up who he was. And David understood that you could worship anywhere. And you should worship anywhere. Remember a couple weeks ago, we even talked about the fact that David worshipped in his bed. And sure enough, last week, somebody came to me right before the service and said, you know, I almost didn't come here because I know I can worship in my bed. And you know what I said to them? You listened! Way to go! Good job! But it's good you're here, too. That's all right. Uh, Yeah, worship has nothing to do really with it. You can come in here and sing the songs, and you can give your money, and you can spend the time. You can even take notes and walk out and not worship at all. Because being here isn't worship. Worship is something that we give to God and God alone. And it isn't praise or thanksgiving. Those things can be part of it because I give praise and thanksgiving and adoration to so many other people. Only one thing I give to God and God alone. I kneel before God. I bow before God and I don't kneel or bow before any human. Not my government, not my president, not my bishop. God and God alone. So we came to this conclusion right here. Worship is the voluntary The scripture says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It has nothing to do with singing. It has nothing to do with giving. It has nothing to do with being here. It has to do with giving yourself as a living sacrifice. And this is the conclusion. Worship is the voluntary humbling of ourselves before God 
and our offering of everything. By the way, do you like our new projectors? We finally got them both working. They're nice and big. Can you see them? Are they clear? And if we ever put fonts up here or something that you can't read, that's okay. Give us a little note and say, hey, we need to change that font. But this is, believe it or not, well, you like that little corner up there on the top? See, if you want to read the voluntary, you have to go volunt, and then the RY is up there. We'll get that changed this week. How's that? Just need to tuck that up in there. All right? Anyway, worship is the voluntary humbling of ourselves before God and our offering of everything, not a portion. And that we even use the wrong language. You know, we say, give your offering. Here, we're, we're going to give our You can't give your offering. You can't give anything to God. He already owns it. All you can do is bring it back to him, but you can't give it because we don't own it. We're all stewards. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on in the year. We bring our offerings. We don't give them. Okay? Now, today we finished the whole sermon, the whole series with a sermon called Trust or Go Bust. All right? So here it is. There is the, the, the differences between Saul and David. Today, trust or go bust. All right? Here we go. Why the title? Simply because Saul had a trust problem. Saul was removed, and we don't hear much about him at all except in sermons like this because Saul had a trust problem. Let me give you some of the, some of the examples. For instance, at his own coronation, he hides. God had already said, you're going to be king, and then when they try to, to bring him and make him king, he can't find him. He's hiding in the baggage. He doesn't trust the fact that God had said, you will be king. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He's, he's told, okay, I want you to go out and you're going to go uh, and against this army and I need you to wait for Samuel because Samuel will come. He was the prophet at the time, the judge. And he said he will come and offer these sacrifices to God. And Saul did not trust that promise. He waited and waited. And when he waited long enough, he thought he offered the sacrifices himself. And just as he's done offering these sacrifices, guess who comes down the road but Samuel. And Samuel says, why, why didn't you wait? Why didn't you trust Because you didn't trust, you have lost the kingdom. He couldn't trust. He took matters into his own hand. And he didn't obey God. When God told him to do something, he didn't do it. He obeyed the people around him. He didn't trust God's command. When God says, I want you to do this, you need to be able to trust and say, this is what I'm going to do. No deviation. I'm going to trust God. And Saul could not do that. He did not do that. And he lost the kingdom. Now let's compare that with David. David, on the other hand, fully trusted the gracious promises of the Lord. Now, see, that's... Wow. He messed up. He did lots of things that he shouldn't have done. And he had to pay the price for those and the consequences. We've talked about that in other sermons. But he did fully trust the gracious promise. And we're going to see that before we're done today. Let me give you some examples. The battle against Goliath. I mean, <laughs> this is a kid. At this point, we're thinking he may be around 15 years old. He's so small, in fact, that uh, the armor of a full-grown adult male doesn't fit on him. They try to put it on him, and it doesn't work. So he goes out against Goliath, who is somewhere between 7 and 9 feet tall. We really don't know. Goliath's got the nice sword. David's got a sling and a rock. But David trusted God. And David wins. And his people are delivered. How about his rise to the throne? When he was about 15 years old, 
Samuel comes to him and anoints him as king. Now, the problem with anointing David as king when he's 15 years old isn't just the fact that he's 15. It's that there's already a king on the throne named Saul. Now what do you do? When you've been anointed king of all Israel, but there's already a king on the throne, what do you do? Do you go to that king and say, hey, off the throne, it's mine now. But David trusted God. He trusted him so much that he said, okay, if I'm king, God will take care of it. If he wants me to kill Saul, he'll tell me. But he hasn't told me that. So I guess what? I'll wait. And we believe that David had to wait about 15 years. He was anointed king of Israel 15 years at least before Saul died. And David had his way to the throne. And in the meantime, David had so many chances to kill Saul. He could have said, you know... You won't get off the throne. That's my throne. Get off. There you go. So many chances to kill him. And he didn't. David trusted God. God said, you're going to be king. David said, okay. In your timing, in your way, in your will, I'll be king. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited. God had promised it. So it's going to happen. You know how much damage has been done in the kingdom and in the world because people took a promise of God, but they didn't wait. They didn't trust for his time. The one that is really glaring at us at the moment, of course, is God's promise to Abraham. When he said to him thousands of years ago, I promise you, you will have a son. And I promise you that your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. And I promise you that all this land you're now walking around will be yours and your descendants. You will have a son. And that's all God said. And Abraham waited. And he waited. And he waited. And then he said, you know, maybe I better take matters into my own hands, so to speak. His wife couldn't conceive So he decides to have a son through a handmaiden named what? Hagar. And he has a son, but the problem is that wasn't the son God promised. God had promised a son through his wife, Sarah. Hagar has a boy named what? You Bible scholars. Ishmael. Sarah eventually has a son, just as he promised, Isaac. All the Jewish people and the Messiah and everyone we're talking about here are descended just as God promised through Sarah's son and Abraham. Who are the descendants of Ishmael? What do we call them today? They're the Arabs. Now that doesn't mean they're evil people. They're not. But is there a little struggle in the world today between say the Jewish people and the Arab people? Do you know where it started? It started in the book of Genesis when one man named Abraham took a promise from God but didn't trust God to make sure it would happen and took matters into his own hand. And because of that, the world is a turmoil. This very day, thousands of years later, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives destroyed because one man wouldn't trust. 
It's amazing. David said, okay, I'm king. In time, I'll be king. Now, to show you all this, I want to tell you a story of David. We'll talk about it a little bit, and we're going to end the service a little differently today as we look at some of the promises of God. But, but where this really comes out is, is later on in life, but later on, uh, Saul's gone now, David's been king for several years, and he settled the kingdom, he's well established, because in the beginning there was a little civil war, and he had to prove to people that he was king, and God would be on his side, and eventually all of his enemies are subdued, and, and he's built a nice palace for himself, and he's taken the new city of Jerusalem, and, and he's built a capital there, and he sits around and says, you know, this isn't right, because I'm in this great palace, I'm king, and God... The Ark of the Covenant, it's in a tent. It's been in a tent this whole time. I want to build a house for God. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, you've got to honor him for that. So he brings in Nathan the prophet and says, you know, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan says, that's a good idea. Do it. And then that night, God comes to Nathan the prophet and says, no, no, that's not a good idea. No. David is a man of blood. He has... Um, slain many people. Now, I asked him to do it. I understand that in the armies, but he's not the one to build a house. Besides, first of all, I didn't ask him to. When I want a house, I'll tell you. Okay, I haven't lived in a house from the very beginning. I don't need a house. If I want a house, I'll tell you. Don't tell me where to live, all right? And he says to David through Nathan, it's not for you. Now, I will have one of your sons build a house. But what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to build the house of David. I'm going to build your line. But you're not going to build me a house. But I will now establish your line forever. Now, this is David's reply. Ready? Here we go. Kind of lengthy, but stick with me. Then David, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O sovereign God? And what is my family that you've brought me this far? As if it were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Which, by the way, just stop for a second. What is it that David wanted to build for God? A house. God said, no, but guess what I'm going to build for you, David? A house. I will build the house of David, and people will speak of the house of David forever. Kind of a little sense of humor for God right there. And he says, is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign God? Are you always like this? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we've heard with our own ears. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made. I love that. He just looked at God and said, now, do it. Do you see how this whole prayer? Oh, God, I'm just, who am I that I, you, now, God, do it. You promised it, do it. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant. This do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. The whole thing started with David saying, I want to build a house for you. And God said, no, I'm going to build a house for you. 
So your servant has found courage to offer this prayer. It does take a lot of courage to walk into the presence of God and say, God, do it! That's gutsy. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Boy, did that just turn out so differently than David thought it was going to be. He thought God was going to say, yeah, build me that house. I'll be wonderful. Here's what it looks like. And instead, David is the one who walks out with the house. Established forever. Do you see the difference in the trust between Saul and David? David trusts him so much that he can actually be bold enough to say, okay, God, how about this? Do it. Keep your word. Why? Because he trusted. Here's what we need to remember about this. First of all, when we're learning to trust God, His promises that we're trusting flow out of His grace. Now, this is huge. If you don't understand the the, the place grace has in God's promises, you're going to miss it all. You're going to wind up like Saul. It's not going to be pretty. All right? Let me show you again what David said. Then King David went and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? As if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man? The answer is yes. This is how he works. He makes promises to us and we don't deserve a single one. Not a single promise. Everything that he promises to us, we can start by saying, who am I that you would give me that promise? What's my family that that you would promise that to me? What have I ever done to deserve something like that? And his answer would be, you're nobody and you don't deserve it. I just want to give it to you. I just want you to have it. We call it grace. See, we make two mistakes when we're trying to, to build our trust in God and live according to his promises. The first mistake is this one. The first mistake is when people come and go, um, oh, I'm unworthy, I'm so unworthy, oh, I'm just so unworthy. And that's where they stay. They don't go anywhere. Oh, you know, God says, here, I want you to take this. Oh, no, no, I'm just so unworthy, I just could never take that. Because I'm so unworthy. <laughs> there was a time in the church long ago when we used to do a lot of specials and people would come up to sing and uh, used to really tick me off because... Uh, They'd spend the first five minutes before they sang going, oh, I'm so unworthy to sing this song. I don't know why God's coming. I wanted to stand up and say, we know, okay. You don't have to tell us. We know you're unworthy. You shouldn't be there. Now shut up and sing, will you please? Just do what God asks you to do. And stop apologizing for it. Yeah. We're unworthy grace part. Is this God's usual way of working with us? Yes! Why? Because we're all unworthy. How long will we be unworthy? Forever and ever. Will we ever deserve it? Will we ever deserve that promise of God? Because, you know, we've been in the church 40 years. We've given, you know, accumulated tens of thousands, or we've worked really hard. No! Never. 
Nothing we can do. But see, that's the second thing that gets in the way of trusting God. When we say to ourselves, I earned that promise. I have been so good the last two months. I deserve that promise from God. Now, maybe that's the way we work with our kids, and maybe that's the way we even work with our kids. I have no idea. But it doesn't work with God at all. All of his promises are based on his grace. I don't deserve any of them. Now, I have my choice. I can just say, oh, I'm so unworthy, I'm so unworthy, I won't take that promise. Or I can be like David and I can say, I'm so unworthy. But you promised, do it. Did you see the change there? Oh, God, I'm so unworthy. Who am I? But now that you've made that promise, do it. Do it. You promised, Father, and I trust you so much. I don't have to earn it because I never will. I know I'm unworthy. Thank you so much for giving me what I do not deserve. And now do it. How exciting to receive this from you. And the next thing that we need to remember, and David didn't understand this, is that the promises, one of the reasons we can trust these promises is because they're based on his character, not my character. All of these promises are going to be based in who he is. These promises will come true not because I've earned them, not because I'm really good, not because I've earned a certain status, I've given a certain amount of money, I've been a certain way. All of these promises will come true because God is, are you ready? God! It's who He is that makes them come true. Not me. Otherwise, I've earned it somehow. I've deserved it. I've done something to to earn the promise of God. God will, if he promises something, it's going to come true because of who he is. Take a look. This is what David said. Remember? How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we've heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem the people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving all nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, and your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. There it is. You know why this promise is going to come true? Because God is God and you can trust him. Not because you're good. Not because you've done anything. Not because you've attended church five times in a row. And man, that's a promise. But because God has made the promise. And when God makes that promise, it's going to come true. Now, You probably know some people in the world that you can trust most of the time. Mostly when they tell you something that's going to come true. You probably also know some people that uh, you don't trust at all. And if they tell you something, you just, you smile, go, man, that's great. And you walk away going, not a snowball's chance in hell of that one ever coming out. Because I know that person. I love my father, he was a great guy. Um. But he loved to make us promises about vacations. And uh, I still remember so many times, you know, because he grew up in Texas and born in Oklahoma and other places. And he would say, you know, next summer, we're going to go to Texas. And, of course, when I was very little, I would go, oh, yeah, that's great. We're going to go to Texas. Eventually, I realized that while my father was a great man and a loving man and a great guy, he tended to overpromise, particularly on vacations, because we didn't go on vacations, period. It's just that simple. We never made it to Texas. We never made it to Oklahoma. And so it came to the point where he would say, you know, next year we're going to Texas. And I would go, man, that's great, Dad. And in my mind, I'm going, I I think I'll plan something else next summer because we're not going to Texas. I just knew it. Not to make him a rotten guy. I loved him. He was a great dad. It was just in this particular area, he would overpromise. 
And I knew it. And I didn't trust those promises any longer. I knew that was his desire. What I honored in him was I know he had the desire to take me to Texas to show me where he lived. He really wanted to do that. He just didn't follow through with it. That's okay. I'm sure that uh, my own children can say some, some, some of the same things about me from time to time. But that's not true about God. When God says, this is what I'm going to do, this is what he does. When God says, this is what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. Every time, without fail, no exceptions. Okay? He's never been an exception. He's never failed. He's not going to start with you or me. His promises are based on his character, not my performance. All right? And one final thing. My actions then display my trust. Okay, do you trust God? Well, talk is cheap, okay? If we really trust God, we're going to do something based on that promise. God's going to promise us something, and that's going to change the way we live. And if we don't change the way we live, it means we don't trust God. David said this, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. It's interesting that what David had to do, the action that he had to do to show that he trusted this promise, was nothing. He wanted to build a house, and God said, don't do it. I'll build your house. And David said, okay. He trusted him so much. He said, Father, you want someone else to build a house? I'll let him. You build my house. Not because of me, but because you promised you would. And when you make a promise, God, it's going to come true. So his promises always will result, if I'm going to trust them, in some sort of change in my behavior. Something I'm going to do a little differently in my life. Because I trust my Father. All of His promises are that way. And we're going to take the next few moments and look at some of them. Because I've already told you everything I want to tell you this morning. Don't get up and leave. We're not ready for that yet. I've given you a little space there in the sermon notes that says, um, Gracious promises he has made me. I want you to take a couple of minutes now, maybe 60 seconds. Because 60 seconds of silence is a long time in a church service. Okay, Write down a few of those promises that he's made you. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time together looking at some of the promises God has made. Ready? 60 seconds starts now. You're not halfway through. I told you it's a long time.
that's 60 seconds, okay? Did you come up with some? This is what I want to do for the rest of our time here. This is important today. I've taken some time this last week to do research within Scripture. I didn't bring all the promises. That wouldn't be possible. But I have a list of promises here from Scripture that God has made to you. We're going to go through them one at a time. We're going to, I want to read them. Sometimes I'll have you read them with me. And I want to ask, do you trust that promise? And will it change your behavior this week? Ready? Here we go. First one. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. How will that change your life this week? You'll probably do without that music, but that's all right. Thanks. There we go. That's a little bit better. How about the next one? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Is that a promise that you can trust? Is that a promise that you can believe in? How will that change your life this week? How about the next one? And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, Please read this right. It didn't say he would supply all your wants. Don't be an American on me here, okay? What do you need? God has it in abundance. The next one. Would you read this with me? That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Some of you are walking around as if you're not saved, as if you don't have eternal life. You're not certain in your life. And yet scripture just tells you right here that if you can confess that Jesus is Lord and believe he's risen from the dead, you have eternal life. How will that change the way you live this week? How about the next one? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, which is good. Because what we have in abundance is weakness. I got that in spades. Therefore, I will boast all the glad, more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. How about the next one? No temptation has seized you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. No saying, couldn't help it, God. No way out. I blew it. God said, oh, I will never bring anything to you that you can't handle with my help. Never, 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 never. Which is why some things will come to you and not other people. You can handle them, they can't. Or they can handle them, you can't. God says, I know you that well. And here's my promise. Next one. And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according. We need to read this one together. Ready? Here we go. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
didn't say that he caused all things. Don't read that wrong. He just said whatever happens in your life, whether I cause it or you cause it or it just happens, doesn't matter. I can take it and I'll turn it around for something good. Bring me your broken toys and I will fix them. Next one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You feeling unrighteous today? Why? Why would you do that? Confess it and be clean. Next one. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a promise. Be generous. And watch what God does back. Next one. So do not fear. I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or how about this? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Are you in Christ? Why are you carrying around the baggage? Not even you anymore. You're so new. How about this? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much a blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Some of us have trouble with giving God our money. Do we trust Him? Or this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is always at work in you, always at work in me. He will take what he's put here and he will bring it to completion. He will never give up on us. You may want to give up on him. He will never, ever, 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 ever give up on you. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God says, I'll give you peace. I'll give you peace. And there's one final one here. Because this is what makes it all real. Okay? All those promises that God made, there was one event that God said, now here is my guarantee that you can trust me and you know what's going to happen. For thousands of years, he promised a Messiah. For thousands of years, he promised someone who would come and remove our sins. For thousands of years, he promised one who would be able to come and reestablish a relationship. And that person came in Jesus Christ and that's why Paul could write this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Would you read that for me? And could you give me the yes? All right, here we go. Ready? For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes 
in Christ. Okay, one more time. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That's what Jesus Christ means to us. So what promises is I just gave you a list of promises that are for you. It was partial. We'd be here all day. Question is, what are you going to do with them? See, that was the thing that, that made David so special. He said, okay, here's a promise. All right. I'll change the whole way I'm going to live. I was going to build you a house, God. No, I'm not going to. I was going to live a certain way, but now I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. Because you made a promise to me. And that changes the way I live. We're going to give you a little time of what we call Selah here. And uh, Caleb, I'm going to handle this one this morning. So just to let you know. Selah is our time to think about it. Now what we're going to do during this time is we're just going to continue to roll those scriptures over and over and over again. Matt's just going to bring them up from time to time. And will those people who are going to help me in serving communion, could you come forward? Here at this church, we serve what's called open communion, meaning you can be a first-time visitor and receive the elements between you and the Lord. The elements will be available to you if you want to come forward. You can stay right where you are. The altar is available. Jack DeMarco is a great man of prayer. If you're having trouble trusting the promises of God, go see Jack and have him pray for you. Get that doubt out of there. Put that trust back in. The altars are open. This is your time right now. And as these promises go up, as you read them, there could be one or two that makes you go, yeah, that's the one I need. That's the one I need to remember this week. By the way, if you want a list of these things, even just let me know. Email me and I'll, I'll send you the whole PowerPoint. How's that? Pretty easily done. Okay. Every sermon I've ever preached to is on PowerPoint. I have them all. Don't ask me why you'd want them, but this one might work out for you. All right? And in the night, 